in the early in the early church there was a controversy about the eternal nature of Christ and there was a group led by a man named Arius who said that Jesus Christ is of a similar substance with the Father and then there was the other party the party that was the Orthodox party that won the day that said no Jesus Christ is of the same substance with the Father see Similar substance, same substance. Heresy, biblical truth. And the, one of the men who, a young man who helped lead the party that affirmed the eternal nature of the Son was a man named Athanasius. And to teach his message, he wrote, or one of his friends wrote, a little song that the people would sing at the docks as they unloaded fish the believers would. It goes like this, glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost. As it was in the beginning, tis now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. I say that, I just thought of that as we were worshiping, just here in the gym, the North Campus, what a joy to hear the gospel proclaimed. Uh, just in this service, we went from no condemnation, now I dread Jesus, and all in him is mine, alive in him my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Wow. We went straight from that to your blood has washed away my sins. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table, Jesus, thank you. And then straight into another hymn that goes like this. Oh, to see my name written in the wounds. For through your suffering I am free. Death is crushed to death by the death of Christ. Life is mine to live, one through your selfless love. This is the power of the cross. I'm, wow. And, and people remembered songs you see you know you remember songs what a glory what really that's what i want to preach on this morning and and, and we just did it so we can be finished really it's amazing so thanks be to god i mean i just am absolutely blessed we started the study of the book called first thessalonians it is um it is probably the second book that paul wrote Galatians being the first book he wrote, chronologically speaking, written only 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus, to a church that Paul ministered to for just a few weeks, a church that he had, through the whispering campaign, through the grapevine, he heard that there was a group of people that came in and said that the apostles were money-grubbing charlatans who were not the men they wanted other people to be, and so we know from 1 Thessalonians that Paul sends Timothy, his trusted lieutenant, to Thessalonica to hear the reports and to squelch the rumors. And we know from 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, Paul says, With great joy, but Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we long to see you. Therefore, brothers, in all of our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. So that's, that's the good news. 
But also this church was full of questions as a, a young church with limited resources. They didn't have the apostolic teachings yet. They just had scattering statements, oral statements. They were, they were beset with doctrinal questions, especially about the second coming. So, so in this book, Paul addresses some incredibly difficult issues. He talks about the importance of, of mentoring and loving people. He, he talks about the absolute importance of sexual purity in a world that was filled with immorality in 1 Thessalonians 4. He, he talks about the second coming of Christ. He, he talks about how to encourage people who are walking through deep, deep grief. He talks about brotherly orderliness and, and friendships and fellowship in the church. Very difficult issues. But, but before he starts, and I, it's easy to run by this. And I just want to talk about one concept today. Before he jumps into how they received the Word of God and how their lives rang out and shouted forth the majesty of Christ, he says this in the first verse of this epistle. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of God in the, the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. He says, we men, writing to you, Thessalonians, who are in God the Father and in our Lord Jesus Christ. What's to stand here to start off with is that, is that Paul, this highly trained Jewish expert, this Pharisee in the law, this man who understood the absolute importance of no other gods before me, that God alone is to be worshipped, just just 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus, he puts God the Father and God the Son on the very same level. It's amazing. But, but what I want you to see here primarily for our consideration is he says, before he gets to the thorny issues, he says, I want you to realize you are in God the Father and you're in Christ Jesus. There's a teaching called our union with Christ. The word in Christ or with Christ or by Christ is used by the Apostle Paul 164 times at least. He says, I want you to understand, before I discuss all of these issues or any of these issues, I want you to, discuss, to understand who you are in Christ. I want you to understand your identity is your union with Jesus Christ. Let's see, the worldly system says your, your point of identification is how you look, or how much money you make, or where you've received your academic degrees, or your ethnicity, or your social standing, or your fill-in-the-blank. And either they pump you up by that standard, or they beat you down to the dirt because you haven't accomplished what you should. But for the believer, our point of identity, Paul says here, before I address anything else, I want you to know that you are in Christ Jesus you are in him. You are in the Lord. You glory in that. You, you, you wonder in that. In, in, in Ephesians, for example, the, our union with Christ is established in eternity past. It's rooted in the eternal love of God. Listen, Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 4. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us. In Christ, 
before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons. So our union with Christ is established before time began. It is effected by the incarnation and the work of Christ upon the cross. Verses 7 and 8. Listen. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Established by the living God before time began, effected by the cross, brought to fruition by the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen, verses 13 and 14. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Paul says, I want you to understand that your identification Church is in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why John Calvin says in book 1, page 6, or 767, something says that this union with Christ is the highest degree of importance. We've got to get this. We've got to get this. And John Murray, who taught at Princeton and Westminster, Scotland divine, said this. He says, union with Christ has two foci. One, the electing eternal love of God the Father in the counsels of eternity. The other, the glorification with Christ in the manifestation of his glory in heaven. Then he says this, the former has no beginning. You're eternally loved. The latter has no end. The joy and hope of heaven. That's who we are. That's our identification in Christ. To the church of the, of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and in Christ. Listen to this. This is Romans 6. Just listen. Romans 6, verse 5. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. Verse 6, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with. We're in Christ. Therefore, we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we died in Christ, we died by Christ, we believe that we will also live with Christ him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. And then he says this, therefore, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You are in Christ, church. If you've trusted him by faith as the one who died on the cross for your sins, you are in Christ. And and Paul says, we've got to get that. Before we're talking about anything else, we've got to realize that we are in 
Christ, I'll never forget. I've been a Christian just a couple of months. I come to faith. The group gave me some verses to memorize. And I remember, I'll never forget, memorizing Galatians 2.20. And when you really study the book of Galatians, Paul's going through this thorny discussion about the law and the law being fulfilled and trying to get these people to see the wonder of the cross. And he gets, he gets deep in a discussion. And then I think he just comes up for air in verse 20. And he says, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And I'll never forget, just memorize, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I, I live. Yeah, I live. Yet not, but Christ lives in me. I says, can it be true? Can, can, it, can it be true that Jesus lives in me in this broken down clay pot skin? That's what the Bible says. Do, do you realize your identity is in Jesus Christ? This young church at Thessalonica, surrounded by all types of issues, limited resources, Paul says, you got to get this, you're in Christ. There is a hymn um, written by a man who died at the age of, when he was 38. And he was out in the field one day, and a thunderstorm rolled in, and lightning was licking his feet. And he came upon this rock. This is the rock he came upon. And there was a shelter in the rock, a cleft, if you will. And he was able to pull his body in, and he was protected from the onslaught of, of driving rain. Went back to his room, and he wrote a hymn, a hymn that William Gladstone, the celebrated prime minister of England, requested to be sung at his funeral, the same him that Prince Albert, the husband of Queen Victoria on his deathbed, asked some friends to sing. He wrote this hymn. Rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be for sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Rock, rock of ages. And the rest of the hymn is says this, I one stanza, just two stanzas. Not, not the labors of my hand can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? These for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior. Or I die. The gospel. Do you realize you're in Christ if you're a believer in Jesus? If you're not a follower of Christ, consider the glory of the gospel. Consider it. Cry out to God for mercy. Do you understand the greatness of your salvation? Who are you? You're not a successful entrepreneur, a student, or a attorney or a housewife, you are a child of God primarily. Love by the living God from all eternity, that love was made manifest and effected by the cross of Jesus 
and you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. You are a child of God. You have union with the risen, reigning Christ. Church of the living God at Thessalonica or Charleston or wherever, realize you're in God the Father and you are in the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the most powerful things I've ever read is this, this little document. It's only 11 pages. It's, it's written by a mathematician from Scotland. It's hard reading, but it's worth it. It's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection by Thomas Chalmers. I've, I've referred to it numerous times before, but this is what he says. Let me just read a couple of sentences. We, we shall never be able to arrest any of the world's leading pursuits by a naked demonstration of their vanity. True. We could show up, we could show Lindsay Lohan and Charlie Sheen and Terrell Owens and say, you know, these guys are just going from bad to worse. They're going to, the first two will spend the rest of their lives in all likelihood in rehab center after rehab. It's just, it's a dead end. You say, yeah, man, it's a dead end. But he says, you can't arrest your affections by just saying the world is vain because we all know the world's vain. He says this. I think of the book by Malcolm Forbes read years ago. It's entitled, How They Went That Away. It's very readable. How the famous and the infamous and the wealthy died. And you read it and you go, good grief, they don't die well. But then later Chalmers says this, he says, or Burns says this, he says, we must address to the eye of the mind of man another object with a charm powerful enough to dispossess the first with his raw ambition or whatever of its influences and to engage him in some other pursuit as full of interest and hope and activity as the former. And he says this. The love of the world cannot be expunged by a demonstration of the world's worthlessness. But may not the heart be prevailed upon to admit its preference another who shall subordinate the world and bring it down from its vaunted ascendancy. This is something else that's grander and more noble must, must pull down the worlds, whatever it is. And he says, and that is the reality of Jesus and him crucified. Now I think of the old hymn. I am resolved no longer to linger, charmed by the world's delights. Things that are nobler, things that are greater, these have allured my sight. That's, a, that's good theology. They've allured my sight. Who are you, child of God? I have union with Jesus Christ. Look to him. So now, application, a few application statements, very quickly. There's a man named James Stewart who wrote a book called A Man for Christ, and he says this, that, that the, our union with Christ is the anchor sheet of apostolic ethics. It's the anchor sheet. Listen to this. This is very graphic language. Paul's writing to a church in Corinth, a city filled with sexual junk. And he says in verse 19, he says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? But right before that, he says this. He says, 
Do you not know, verse 15, that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I? Then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two shall become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. He says, you know, are you, are you going to take Jesus and unite him with a prostitute? He says, God forbid. He says, I belong to Jesus. I, I, I want to honor him. I want to glory in him. This is who I am. I belong to Christ. The same language doesn't relate as graphic as this, but in James chapter 3, James is writing, he says, you know, speech. Speech. He says, you know, think about this irony. We curse men with the same lips that we praise God with. And James says, this should not be. He says, do, do, you, get a, do you get salt water and fresh water from the same stream? And he says, no, no, no. See, we belong to Jesus. Our speech belongs to Jesus. We are in him. Now, I've got to run through this very quickly. So I'm going to skip Newton, but... I, I saw this stick. We live. This is an election year. South Carolina has been the focal point of the world the last two weeks. Now we'll be forgotten for another three years and ten months and two weeks. I saw this bumper sticker the other day on a brand new, high-profile, very expensive car, and I almost floorboarded it and rear-ended him. In the name of Jesus. Now, if you don't, the O was a symbol of, you know, Mr. Obama's campaign. And I, I, just, I just thought, you know, let me tell you, if I saw any of you with that bumper sticker, I would rebuke you in the name of Jesus. That's wrong. Wrong. You can disagree with people on the plane of ideas and governance, but you don't belittle people. It's just wrong. It's sinful. It's not wrong as sin. Some of you know that I was on Fox News this week for three seconds. And uh, I don't know exactly how they got our name here at our church. I'm sure somebody here told them. I, I didn't ask the guy. By the way, I told him, he, asked, he said, who are you going to vote for? I said, off the record. He said, off the record. I said, well, I'm leaning toward this candidate. And then he said it on the news. So, anyway, what's interesting, the next day we're in a, we're in a meeting, and uh, just tell you, I'll tell you this, this is, so receptionist comes in and says, Japanese TV is here to interview you. I said, what? So there's a Japanese TV crew out here to interview you, and I went, so I go out, and there's this very attractive Japanese woman there, and she gave me her card, and there's a man there who's a, who is a Johns Hopkins grad and a Far Eastern Studies expert and is with the Japanese TV Bureau. And on the back it said Bureau's in 
Paris, London, Rome, Washington, New York, and Greer. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and they did. They had all those things down there, and they said, we're, we're, we want to interview you about this uh, primary. This is for the 60 Minutes edition of Tokyo TV be shown Sunday night. I thought, <laughs> why not, you know? So we start talking. She's 28. She just got married. Uh, she's from Hiroshima, which is interesting. Um, we start. You know what I did? I just shared the gospel. They they would ask. I said, "Well, let me, we believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That He's God. It's really really fun. It's really fun." And uh, and then they, they said, "Well, what, what do you think? What do you think about President Obama? I said, well, I think President Obama is a very kind man. I said, I think he's faithful to his wife and he loves his daughters. I said, but as a follower of Christ, to me, the ethical issue of our day is the sanctity of human life. And in that regard, the president does not do well. In fact, he does horribly. So I would be opposed to him, especially on that level, because that, to me, we believe life is sacred. It's sacred. I started to say, as an aside, I've read some books about Japan and Japan demography, and you guys are aborting your future. In 50 years, your population is going to be decreased by 35%. And who's going to take care of you, lady, when you're 78 and 88? I didn't say that. I'd held my tongue. <laughs> but you see, <clears throat> I say that because, and what I, what I said to her is that we believe that all men are made in the image of God and that all men deserve respect in Christian love. The Buddhists don't believe that. We believe life is sacred. They don't believe that. This is who we are. Who are you, child of God? You have union with Jesus Christ, the God who became a man. So very quickly, very quickly. And then he says, because of that, grace and peace flow over into your life. Grace and peace flow over into your life. You know, grace, the unmerited favor of God in Jesus. Peace is the universal flourishing and harmony and order he brings to your life. Your birthright child of God because you're in union with Jesus is grace and peace. The, the flourishing, the wholeness, and the harmony that Christ brings by the power of his Holy Spirit. That's who we are. And as I, as I, th I thought about this, I thought, you know, one of the ramifications of this is, quite frankly, you're, you're Christ-centered. There's, there's a man named Clyde Kilby, and he's, he's got 10 resolutions for mental health. He taught at Wheaton for 30-some years. He died 20 years ago. But, but, but number five is this, and his 10 resolutions for mental health, Google it, Clyde Kilby, K-I-L-B-Y. He says this, I shall not demean my own uniqueness by envy of others. I shall stop boring into myself. To discover what psychological or social categories I belong to, mostly I shall simply forget about myself and do my work. I'll stop boring into myself. I'll be Christ-centered. I won't worry about what psychological category somebody wants to fit me in. I'll be Jesus-centered. I'll be gospel-driven, gospel-oriented. This is who I am. There's a quote in the book from C.S. Lewis. I'm going to read it. He says, you know, when you consider the reality of Christ... Either you see yourself as, as somebody that is totally undone all the time and deserves judgment, or you just forget about yourself altogether. So it's better to forget about yourself. You know, who are you, child of God? 
You have union with God through the reality of all that Jesus is for us. Three minutes and I'm done. Yep. I am, I, I, I will often, often come home after meeting with some people from this church. Oftentimes, the people I meet with are board certified or successful or they've had a, a, a wonderful career and they're retired. And, 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 and I come away going, they're, they're humble. They're teachable. And I, I think of, you know, Augustine said there, there are three rules for those who are involved in rhetorical studies. And he taught rhetoric. Augustine died in 350. He said, Enunciation, enunciation, enunciation. And he said, similarly, there are, there are three rules for men and women of God. Humility, humility, humility. And I, where does humility come from? You see the glory of the cross, and that apart from that, you are undone. That, that's it. Who are you? I am in Jesus, a child of God. I am in Him. At a funeral yesterday, I went to, Dean led it. It was a man who uh, really was for his wife. The husband died two years before, but it's kind of a service for both of them. And George and Dorothy Sadler. Uh, George was a graduate of Princeton Seminary. Uh, Lifelong pastor, played the trombone or trumpet, trumpet. Wonderful man. The last few years of his life, he lived here. His wife slipped into dementia. I didn't really know her that well. He took care of her. He sat right there every Sunday. And George, I, I would come in and greet him. He'd stand up. He'd put his always put his hand on my shoulder. Grab had had a vice grip, and he would squeeze my hand and pull me in, and get right in my face. I like personal space. Okay. <laughs> he get right in my face, and he'd say, "Brother, preach the gospel. Preach the gospel." That's what he said. So not just say preach the word. He just preach the gospel. Because he'd been at this stuff a long time. He'd seen generations come and generations go. He knew we had to get the gospel right. In all of its glory, eternal love of God, effectually made possible by the cross, sealed by the Holy Spirit. Glory be to God for the gospel. You get that right, then you go forward. You've got to get that right first. You've got to live there. You've got to preach it to yourself every day. Lord, thank you for this day and for the mercy of the gospel of Jesus. Thank you for the privilege of worship. Oh, God, thank you. Thank you, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.